If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about investing in your customers. To help me discuss this topic is Michael Schrage. Michael is a research fellow at the MIT Center for Digital Business and the author of several books, including the HBR single ebook, Who Do You Want Your Customers to Become? Michael, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were inspired to write this book. My serious academic background, such that it is, is behavioral economics and computer science. And I've always been interested in the impact that technology has on how people behave and how people perceive things. I've always been interested in what makes people not just more productive, but what makes people more valuable. And so if you have an economics background, that sort of drives you to the issue of, of human capital. What makes human capital more valuable? How do you increase your return on human capital? And the classic answer is, you know, you train people, you educate people, you you send them to school. Um, I was a little more interested in the skills that people acquired. I was sort of interested in the way that technology transformed what people could do, you know, whether it's a bicycle, an automobile, an airplane, or, or a computer, or a phone. And, and, I was really interested in innovations, you know, all the innovations. How do people come up with innovations and create new value? But if you look over the trajectory of my work over the last 20 years, it's really shifted from how can people create more valuable innovation to how can innovation create more valuable people? That's a really interesting twist on um, yeah. a flip. In a sense, it's almost like the driver behind innovation has changed. That's exactly right. You know, my first book was on collaboration, Watson and Crick and Brock and Picasso and Wilbur and Orville Wright and Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. But, but when you look at them, as fascinating as it was to see the way they collaborated to, to innovate, the product, their innovations, transformed how people behaved. They transformed people's expectations. They transformed people's capability. So if you think about it, I I just really flipped the equation a bit. And I became more interested in the human capital component. And that means if you're interested in innovation, the question shifts from how, how do we come up with better innovations for our customers to, gee, maybe we should innovate our customer. Instead of transforming what we give our customer, maybe we should transform the customer and our client. Maybe innovation isn't something that's an exchange between an innovator and a customer. Maybe in innovation is an investment and the creativity, the competence, the human capital of your customers and clients. And that was a galvanizing insight. Now, to be sure, this did not just pop out of the blue. Um, I was reading books and inspired by folks like Kevin Kelly, who I had worked with at Wired and the old Whole Earth Catalog. You know, he wrote a book called What Technology Wants. And sort of implicit in that, or I should say explicit in that, is, you know, technology asks you to behave in certain ways. But I wanted to move the needle again. Remember, economics background. People talk about economics being fair exchange. That's a transaction. But honestly, in the longer term, 
I'm more interested in investments than transactions. And so by changing the time horizon, by changing the focus of value creation, I realize that the real center of gravity, the real, if you'll excuse the word, schwerpunkt, shouldn't be the innovation itself. It should be the customer. It should be investing in the customer, investing in the client. How do we make our customers and clients more valuable? How do our innovations, how do our offerings, how do our user experiences, not just make the customer happy in the moment, how does it make the customer and the client more valuable in the longer term? That's a relationship that interested me. I love that thinking because in this podcast, we oftentimes emphasize that companies tend to be product-centric and they tend to think about things in product-centric terms. And it's it's insidious in that it's in the phrasing, it's in the data, it's in every way that they look at how they operate. But to be customer-centric is oftentimes given lip service and we talk about it as um, you know a great thing to do and to be customer-obsessed and have the customer experience, but it doesn't usually pan out when it comes to investment because they're not connecting the equity element of the customer. They're not necessarily investing in the customer. They're putting a light skin of customer on what's product-centric activity. In your book, you talk about the ask. And I think this question is really pivotal to getting a company to change their thinking. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the ask and how you've seen that applied? Sure. Um, Well, of course, the ask is, you know, who do you want your customer to become? That's a question. It's not how do you want to delight your customer, which is important. How do you want to satisfy your customer, which is important. How do you want to meet your customer's needs, which is important. How do you want to listen to your customer? All, all very important. But again, what we're looking for is something different. I'm, I'm not shy. I'm not hesitant about declaring I want us to transform the customer. So I'm going to give you a real-world example in regards to the ask. You know, who do you want your customer to become? I worked with an organization that was really, and it was was a technical organization. And, you know, they had the classic legacy cultural issue of, you know, customer features. Uh, Our product has various kinds of features and functions that the customer will appreciate. And after several years, they managed to break that mindset and get the engineers and the designers and their marketers to move away from features and functions to what? Here are the benefits of those features and functions. And we did, and you're going to roll your eyes, which is why I'm grateful that it's a podcast, so I don't have to see that. You're going to roll your (laughs) eyes because I pushed a a nice, simple, and I want to underscore this, cheap, 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 cheap way of getting them to alter their thinking in a way that was compatible, not disruptive, compatible with what they were already doing. I was thinking, in addition to customer benefit, just simply describe how you expect these benefits to transform or change significantly, not marginally, significantly change customer behavior, significantly change customer expectations. We have the behavior, we have the expectations. And what did they discover? Well, some of those features and functionality, well, yeah, they were fine, but they, the changes were really incremental, you know, and Gee, if you're only offering incremental changes, it's kind of tough to command a premium for that. It's kind of tough to be more distinctive and differentiation in that regard. And so simply by playing with the semantics, by insisting that a benefit needs to be linked to a change in behavior and a change in expectation, ultimately, what was I trying to push them? Change in customer capabilities, human capital. But that's it. Language is really, really, really important here. As you rightly identified, there's a world of difference between exchange, you know, putting a skin on something and selling. There's like there's a difference between sales and marketing. There's a difference between a a better transaction and a better investment. Mm -hmm. And we need to change that language because to go to your point, that's what equity means. Equity isn't about a transaction. Equity is about you put equity in with the expectation and hope 
that it's going to be what? More valuable six months, 12 months, 24 months, five years down the road. I love that because that's exactly right. You know, it's the future leaning forward thinking. Now, in the book, you talk about the key insights of the ask. You know, we, we've given a nice summary of it, but there's really a lot of richness to this question. And, and we've started to allude to that. But there were six specific insights that you called out in the book. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown? Well, yes. The six key insights and I don't mean to run this down as a list list, but let's think of it as a framework, as a scaffolding for the rest of the conversation. Innovation is an investment in human capital, that if you're an innovator, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a professional service provider, what you're really saying is your future is dependent upon their future. If that's true, if you buy into that, why wouldn't you want their future to be better? Mm -hmm. It's a win-win kind of situation. Innovation is about designing new customers and clients, not just new products, new services, or customer experiences, okay? That's not to say we're not going to use products and services and, and add value to them. It's that we're using those products and services and user experiences as the investment in the customer, so it's not just an object, it's not just a service, it's not just a thing, it's not just an experience, it's an investment. You've got to think of your innovations, you've got to think of your product as investments. What kind of an investor are you? I love that connection. So customer vision is as important as your organizational or corporate or firm vision. Every bloody organization I go into has a vision of the company what we want to be when we grow up, what the company wants to do. Very, very rarely do I see a customer vision. That's not to say there aren't values in respecting the customer, but it's static. Who do we want to, over time, people change over time. There's an arc. How does the narrative, the innovative arc trajectory change over time? Align customer vision which is what we want our customers and clients to become with the user experience, what the products and services and, and experiences we have can do for them. We have to create a user experience trajectory. It's not just a roadmap or a moment in time, it's a trajectory. What's the arc of that trajectory? Now, I do want to break out a little earlier here something that needs to be discussed. All customers aren't alike. Hooray! <laughs> right. You know, we live, you know, uh, Joe Pine, I met at MIT before mass customization was even a gleam in his eye. He was a song fellow. You know, there's the personalization trajectories, the customization trajectories. That's fantastic. But, you know, for most organizations, there's a cert there are certain characteristics associated with their best customers in terms of profit, revenue, relationship, quality, quantity, and their typical or average or quote-unquote normal customer. How do you want to invest in your best customers differently than your typical customers? What are your expectations? How do you want to transform them? These, this different customers require different asks. Who do you want your best customers to become is really quite profoundly a different question than who do you want your average customers or typical customers to become. Can I, let me ask you a clarifying question on that for a minute, because we run into this all the time. So let's say I, as a company, I have six different products and there's two ways to calculate my best customers. Uh, one way is across all products and thinking about them synergistically. But not all companies have synergistic products. Sometimes they really address a different market with a different product and there are limited synergies. Uh, an example of that might be pharmaceutical, right, where you have different drugs for different um, for different types of illnesses. But just because I have one illness doesn't mean you're going to sell me a product for another illness, right? I, I might not be sick with that. Um, so how important is it to think about the arc of the customer development and you know, what you want your customer to become in the framing of the product versus in the framing of the company? That's a, that's a terrific question. And, um, you know, 
my my argument is that the smartest thing, the wisest thing for most organizations to do is go from customers in rather than product or company out. I think you begin with where, I mean, with all due respect to the, you know, Prahalad, uh, C.K. Prahalad, the late C.K. Prahalad and Gary Hamill, as important as core competencies are, your core competencies are, your customers and your clients' core competencies and capabilities matter more. Um, now, I'm going to give you a split answer, and then I'm going to give you a story. The split answer is, I begin with your question, doing a Pareto analysis. What are the 20% of those products that generate 80% of the revenues or desirable outcomes that I like? And I flip it. What are the 20% of the customers, my super users, that generate 80% of the value? financial, innovation, stuff that I like. I got a map. You tell me what the overlap is. You tell me what the overlap between those two things are, and I can begin to give you really constructive advice on who you want your customers to become, what kind of capabilities you seek to create with them and for them, and how your own internal capabilities and human capital issues and investments need to change. But if you're running a business, you need to do that dual Pareto analysis. Oh, I love that angle. Don't make the mistake that so many organizations do is they begin with where they are and they cheat themselves on the dynamism and creativity of their people, their colleagues, and their customers. But, you know, you mentioned pharma. I'm going to give you a real world example. I, I just had a, got a book uh, where I have a chapter and I reread the chapter because I wrote the, the chapter over a year ago and it reminded, oh, yeah, I actually wrote that. So I was working with an OTC pharma company, and it was an allergy relief company. I'm not going to give the name. It's an allergy relief company. And they were saying, how do we do a better job of quantifying and segmenting the benefits associated with allergy relief? You know, how do we sell to families? How do we get the kids to do it? How do we do it around allergy relief? And this was fun. This is a class because that's what the, the FDA, again, it is OTC over the counter, but that was the, that's the, the claims, the medical claims. And, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this to quote unquote sound clever. I'm trying to do this as a way to elucidate the who do you want your customers to become framework. I said, so who do you want your customers to become? Well, we want them to have more allergy. Yes, of course, you want to reduce them, but What's the real benefit in that regard? Well, they get to breathe easier. Stop. Who do you want your customers to become? We want our customers to be people who breathe easier. Does that have to be dependent on allergy relief? Um, actually, no. Turns out that this company, I may be giving enough information for people to infer it. But you remember those nasal strips where you can hold, put it on your nose? So you get, okay. So this was a fairly large company. And I said, you know what you guys should do? You should audit, do an internal audit and find out all the things that are going on to make breathing easier for older people with emphysema, not allergy related to, to children, you know, who have coughs and colds. What about joggers? Gee, you know, there are apps. You can now do sound recognition. Maybe you should have an app that has people cough or analyzes your breathing. Okay, now, mind you, large company, but if you just change the focus from how do we provide better allergy relief to what are the multiple dimensions of ways to make it possible for people of all shapes, sizes, colors, ages, etc., to breathe easier, by the way, now I'm, now I'm going to push the envelope, and this is one of the reasons why you don't give the name. Um, sometimes people find it difficult to read when they're nervous. This company happened to have an a antidepressant that was not OTC. But the whole notion of all the dimensions of people feeling apprehension and interfering with breathing. Gee, should they become involved with meditation? If you think about it, these are questions are now obvious. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. But if you are in a highly regulated, siloed business where your medical claims are constrained to what you submit before the FDA, 
you kind of have an incentive not to think that way. So once you begin doing who do we want our customers to become better allergy relief? You know, well, that, that kind of constrains you to the axis of allergies. It does. It does. So I want to clarify, these are not stupid people. These are not narrow-minded people. But these are people for whom their recognition and reward structure, their, the very product orientation and focus that you describe, the very features and function and price and user experience issues that you describe, literally and figuratively get in the way of what they're really trying to do. Ironic, isn't it? It is. It is. And we've run right into that. I know exactly what you mean. And in a sense, the org structure itself can be a, a hurdle because the recognition and reward is oftentimes anchored to that same structure. What did your division do? How much revenue did it generate? Things like that. But it, it strikes me as a very entrepreneurial question when you ask them to think about the customer in a broader sense. In fact, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, the way John Doerr talks about about uh, looking for big markets and solving big problems. Just forgive me for being a name dropper, but uh, I talked with John Doerr back when I was a young journalist, reporter covering Silicon Valley for the Washington Post. I consider John to be a friend. I literally am staring at a copy of his book, Measure What Matters, uh, uh, which I gave to my wife. An excellent book. I'm a huge John Doerr fan. And just to underscore your point, I asked John, just to date myself, in the 1980s, in the 1980s, you know, what kind of companies are you looking for, John? And he looks at me very intently behind his glasses, and he says, Michael, when we do it right, we're not investing in new companies, we're investing in new industries. Talk about, we want to create, not just great companies, we want to create companies that create new industries. That's, yes. that's not a subtle yes. distinction. So even no, back not then, at all. you know, these things matter. And, and by the way, if there's anybody who understands these human capital issues and capability creation issues, it's a guy like John Brewer and his, back when I knew them, colleagues at Kleiner Perkins. Oh, yeah. So, well, and Intel even before that. It sure. was, uh, you know, he's got quite a, a history. It's, uh, he he yeah, does. Amazing. And as, in, since you're calling me in Portland, you know, you had Justin Ratner and Portland had, you know, Intel Labs for a long time doing very interesting supercomputer work. Um, but, but those days are gone. Yes, yes, I gotcha. Okay, so I actually, I think we interrupted part of the framework. Let's circle back on that. And then let's go into a couple more examples, because the examples, I think, really stick the framework. Um, We were talking about the aligning the customer vision with UX, which is, you know, such a rich topic in itself. Are there more pieces to the framework? There were, there were two more that I explicitly discuss in the book. And, you know, we can talk about a couple of others that I've I've come across or developed since then. But one, of course, is, is I'm a great believer in prototyping, rapid prototyping, modeling and simulation and experimentation. And, and you know, when one looks at, again, innovation, oftentimes you are your own best beta. You are the best person to test something. I think it's absolutely key that you use your prototypes, not just to test the prototype, not just to test the model, but to elicit insight and engagement and interaction with potential customers and clients so that they can inform your next iteration and enhance it. So Mm -hmm. are you meeting their need? Yes, but that's not good enough. Are you gaining insight in who they really want to become? Who do they really mm-hmm. want to become? So who did that arguably better than anyone else? Clearly, a Steve Jobs did that remarkably well. He did it in industry after industry. Need Hastings at Netflix. Mm-hmm. Fantastic job. Brin and Page for Google. Who do you want your customers? These are people who understood not just how to do a technical experiment and test and design a prototype, but how to do the kind of, let's call it, let's create a phrase, iterative excellence. They were able to learn from the first and second version of a design in a way that proved transformative. 
you know, with all due respect to Steve, who I knew again from the Washington Post, and Johnny Ive, who I knew less well, you know, in the in in, in Jobs' second iteration, pun intended, at Apple, <laughs> the iPhone now is radically, radically different than the first generation. Yes, the core concepts were there, but you know, the, the notion of an app store, all of these things, the notion of an who do you want your customers to become? Not somebody who would just use the phone, somebody who would use a device to do whatever computing can mean. In fact, the iPhone wasn't just a device, it's what? It's a platform. How do you know it's a platform? Because people write to it. People didn't do that with a Nokia phone or a Blackberry. Not that those weren't excellent, quote unquote, devices. They were network devices that weren't Platform. It was a different paradigm. Exactly. And that's where we can use the P word legitimately. Now, I want to push on this just a little bit because we're using customers in the um, in the holistic sense, but I think there's also a very sharp degree of heterogeneity in here when you're asking or you're, you're getting feedback from your customers. Do you feel it's important to look at that feedback with the lens of equity, in other words, who's my high value customer, who's my medium value customer, who's my low value customer, or can that take you down the wrong path? Um, I'm going to give you a cop-out answer and then a serious answer. The cop-out answer is I, I can't predict the future. I don't know. I mean, particularly with disruptive innovations, who can know? The advantage of incrementalism is almost by definition, it should be more predictive than something that's disruptive than something that is... Because it's nimble? No, no, because because a paradigm really forces people to think. You, 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 know, you think that something is a good idea until you realize it's not a good idea. And this sort of ties into the dark side of the ask. You know, the example I use on the dark side, oh, and we'll come back to this, but the, the example I use on the dark side of the ask is one of the most successful innovations in the history of food, you know, which is, which is uh, supersizing in McDonald's. That was one of the most profitable things that McDonald's ever did, supersizing. You know, for a small, McDonald's could sell more stuff, manage its inventory better, inventory turn better, give customers a better value, and like 70% of what they charged was pure profit. The downside is they got labeled, not unjustly, on the whole childhood and adulthood obesity and bad nutrition aspect. Right. So here you had a brilliant innovation, brilliant by any economic financial measure. It was awesome, awesome. And they had the stock price to prove it. But when you looked at what does supersizing ask your customer to become? Yeah, well, you know, if you want to put a nice gloss on it, fuller ask for less. Ask the customer to become. If you want to put a less nice gloss on it, fat and unhealthy. And that, Yes, yes, a very dangerous side of the, the dark side of the ask. Exactly. We, we can do this with Facebook, you know, sharing and connecting with friends, violating one's own privacy, the privacy of one's friends, you know, becoming obsessive to the point of narcissistic or exhibitionistic or intrusive or stalking, you know. Now, one has to be careful about scaling pathologies or dysfunctions in ways that are simply unfair, but it is intellectually dishonest, which I do not like to be, it is intellectually dishonest to believe that innovations are all benefit and minimal cost. Just not true. When we iterate and improve something, oftentimes we improve things as much by reducing its dark side as by enhancing its upside. That's very insightful. Do you think these companies didn't really frame what they were doing around the ask in the first place so they didn't see the dark side or did they see it and just not pay attention to it? I am we'll talking about a leading the witness question. Respect. I, I cannot be in their, in their minds. I, I, I think if you are running a, a, a cigarette company, you know, there are certain kinds of, of inferences that are very, very difficult to avoid after 15 or 20 years. If you're, we'll name names, if you're Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola and you're looking at how people consume and, you know, you saw what happened just to give the illusion of continuity here with McDonald's, 
and you see your carbonated beverage associated with certain kinds of health issues and diet issues, uh, you probably, to use a nice Wall Street phrase, want to consider rebalancing your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Now, who do you want your customers to become? Well, well, let's begin with the Hippocratic thing. First, do no harm. Okay, we don't want them to be unhealthy. Okay, so we're going to manage our formulations different. And then we want them to be healthier. So we're going to have different kinds of drinks offerings and snacks offerings. Um, I, I am hesitant about assuming the worst in organizations and leaders of organizations. That said, in an evidence-based, data-driven, and indeed litigious and regulated society, I think it behooves organizations to spend as much time managing downside risk as upside potential. And perhaps this question, the ask, helps them see that potential risk that they didn't see before. Again, back to equity, right? Thank you for putting it that way. That's exactly right. This, if, you, if you think about it, who do you want your customer to become is as much a risk assessment challenge as a opportunity framing. Let's talk about some other examples because the, the McDonald's and Facebook examples are fantastic ways to understand the dark side of the ask. And I think that's a, a very important place for companies to start. But what about the innovation angle? Because I can sense there's an awful lot that this question drives in terms of innovation as well. Well, the definition I use for innovation is the conversion of novelty into value. And that sort of inherently raises the subjective contextual issue of novel to whom, valuable for whom. You know, I do a lot of advisory work for large organizations, and I've been involved in, forgive the phrase, digital transformation in many legacy organizations. Hmm. And it sort of, forgive my language, sucks if you're running IT in a large organization because you can be as innovative as all get out but for somebody who's used to Netflix or Amazon Web Services or Google, what you're doing inside the firewall doesn't look nearly as impressive as the stuff that's going on from Silicon Valley, be it Facebook or LinkedIn or Microsoft, what have you. So for, for a traditional IT department, what you're doing is incredibly innovative. But as far as your customers are concerned, no, not at all. So context matters here. And that's why it's impaired. That's why it's key. You know, I want to connect this to something that I mentioned in the book that we haven't really discussed yet. And it was a, it was something that I read. I mentioned that Kevin Kelly stuff, but let's mention another guy, the classic. And I mean, classic marketing text of the 20th century with all due respect to my friend, Phil Kotler at Northwestern was Ted Levitt at Harvard's marketing myopia piece or the Harvard business review in 1960, which was for, 50 years, the most requested reprint in the history of Harvard Business Review. And the question that Ted Levitt asked was, because this was, you know, the Peter Drucker days, it was aligning strategy and marketing. What business are you in? If you're, the rail, if you're a railroad, are you in the railroad business or are you in the transportation or logistics business? If you're an oil company, are you in the oil business or the hydrocarbon business, or the energy business. And because of globalization and innovation, you need to revisit this question. What business are you in? No, no, no. What business are you really in? And my problem was, as I read the piece and really thought about it, was something was missing. And here's the, the, the vignette that really kicked me off and made me starkly realize what was missing. If you were to read that piece, and it's well worth rereading, you see that Levitt refers to the challenges of coping with technological disruption. And so there's this thing called the car, the automobile, also known as the horseless carriage, coming in. And, and you know, there's this guy Ford. And if you make buggy whips, what do you do? What business are you in? And, you know, Levitt does this as sort of a throwaway comment, but I'm one of these guys who, when somebody throws something away, I grab it, you know, because there's usually an unexpected reason why somebody is being so casual and cavalier and making 
what could be a really provocative point. Oh, there's a journalist background. If you're in the buggy whip business, are you in the fine leather goods business? Are you in the animal control business? Or if we want to be consistent with the rise of the automobile, are you in the steering business? Levitt never raises, let alone answers these questions, but there is an answer. It depends on which customers you want. And so when I work with organizations, I don't immediately start them off, who do you want your customer to become? I remind them of their Levitt and say, what business are you in? What business are you in? And here's the book ending. Here's the framing. Mm. What business are you in? Who do you want your customers to become? How do you bloody well align the answers to both those questions? Because how you answer Levitt's question sure as heck informs how you answer mine. How you answer my question sure as heck informs how you rethink Levitt's. I am not asking anybody. I not, one of the most important things I've learned in advisory work and teaching is don't tell people, even if it's true, don't tell people everything you know is anachronistic, everything you know is out of date, you have to start from tabula mm -hmm. rasa. No, 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 don't do that. You, you give people, you let people have something that they care about and that they thought about, and you allow them, you encourage them, you facilitate them, you empower them to create a narrative that lets them build on things they're already familiar and comfortable with. That, that, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be aspects that they're going to have to, they won't have to let go and sure, get rid of or sure. change. But you simply can't say to people, everything you know about marketing, everything you know about brand. No, is that's wrong. true. I mean, I, I find that really great insights stand on the shoulders of what's already known and just add another dimension to it, just like you described. And, but by default, do you find that if a company can't get to a clear answer about what business they're in, then you really, you've almost predicted their demise? Well, I can honestly say to you that I have never done work with a company that couldn't at least give an acceptable answer to the Levitt question. They may disagree about the intensity and the efficacy of their answer about what business they're really in, but they can all answer. The, it's been my experience. They can all answer the Levitt question. Yes, there may not be as much rigor as you and I might like to that, but there's an answer. Um, but you're correct. Fundamentally, organizations that give weak answers to the business that they're in and have inordinate difficulty describing which kind, what, what, who they want their customers to become or their best customers or their typical customers to become, they've got bigger problems than dealing with me. Right, because then it's focus. Yeah, I, you know, the, the, the reality is, and this is not a self-serving comment, the reality is if we did the behind the mirror focus group on their customers, their best customers and the typical customers, do we really think we'd be hearing a lot about the quality of the organization and how the organization delivers above and beyond expectations and is a source of pleasant surprise? Yeah, that kind of stuff doesn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen by accident. You know, design, I'm, a, I'm not a, a Roger What's-His-Name fan, I'm a Herb Simon fan. Uh, um, design thinking, you know, going back to Herb Simon, it's the ordering of intention which means you have to have an intention and you have to have the discipline and rigor to sequence it, to order it appropriately. Right. Organizations that are good marketers and follow the who do you want your customers to them, they have a design ethos. They have a design sensibility. Let's let's talk about that design side because I think that fits nicely into the Dyson story. And what I what I really liked about that story, which also appears in the book, of course, is the ability for someone to break out of an industry, um, like a, like a typical industry approach, break out into something new based on the very thorough understanding of what the customer wanted and wanted to become. Well, it's it's. You know, the, the Dyson story, and I've had the opportunity to meet Sir James. Um, I, I don't think he's been made a lord yet. Um, really, really interesting guy. And one of the reasons why I got to know Dyson was that my some of my original research focused back, you remember the collaboration stuff on prototyping. Mm -hmm. And he did something like 5,000 iterations, 5,000 prototypes of the bagless Dyson 
vacuum cleaner, you know, and just talk about disruption. It was a different, literally a different physical principle. You know, it was a cyclonic uh, vacuum principle as opposed to, if you'll excuse the expression, the Hoover suck mm-hmm. uh, uh, compressor, you know, uh, principle. But we'll, 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 we'll skip the, the, the physics and mechanical engineering of vacuum cleaners. What was the demarking insight? So here's this guy going into an absolutely legacy incumbent dominated industry with, with something. How does he show that he's more effective? That was the question. How does he show that he's more effective? And the answer was pretty bloody obvious. Now there's certain materials involved, but you make it transparent. They have bags and you, you don't see the dirt. Everybody said, well, you don't want to see the dirt. His view is, let's take that bug and turn it into a feature. Let's, let's literally show how much better we are. And they do the equivalent of a plexiglass for the thing. And you can see how much dirt the Dyson Cyclonic vacuum cleaner takes in. You couldn't do that. Now, it would be really interesting if there had been a Hoover bag, a transparent bag, you know, maybe they do a deal with Glad or something, and you can see that. But but the reality is, and I know enough that I can say this with a high degree of confidence, even if you could manage the physics and and computational fluid dynamics of it, there'd be less dirt. It wouldn't have the same impact as what Dyson did. And so you were really in the situation here by showing you, but you, you could show your work. People could literally see something they had never seen before. Sure, they saw, quote unquote, cleaner floors. But once they saw the Dyson demo, they realized, gee, maybe there's still a lot of dirt and filth there. I, I want to point out that, that, that P&G had an analogous set of iterative development with the Swiffer, which has done fairly well for it as a category and as a brand. So the whole notion of being able to see what you've done, to see the virtue and that who do we want our customers to become? We want our customers to be, to be who don't just to appreciate that our thing works, who can see how well our, our products work, who comment on, on, on that. Now, you know, there, there are certain spinoffs of that, I would imagine that that for, for some people, an interesting segment would be after I, the first time I use this, or the first two or three times I use this, I never want to see that level of density of filth again, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, that, that's, you know, so, so you know, is, is the place you can, so the, the, there's certain life cycle issues that have to be played out here. But, but in terms of closing the deal, in terms of making it clear what the value prop was, it was, uh, it was inspired. It teeters on the brink of genius. It wasn't just the quality of the physical properties of the, of the vacuum cleaner. It was the way the, the vacuum cleaner literally allowed people to see how it transformed a, a, a horrible household chore. Or at least I consider it to be a horrible household chore. <laughs> I think we all consider any household chore to be a horrible household chore. I, uh, no, no, no. I, I, I've, my my wife would disagree. She likes. <laughs> well, okay. So we we've covered a lot of ground, and of course, I highly recommend the book, and we'll be linking to that with the show notes. But let's say that I've you know I've I've grasped the concept, and I really like the direction of asking who I want my customers to become. But you know, it's a simple question with a lot of nuance behind it. What should someone do? first, second, third, if they want to execute or try to apply this? Well, I think, putting aside the book, I think it's actually fairly straightforward. I think one wants to be careful about the level of abstraction and the level of specificity. But when I work with, let's say, medium-sized organizations, I just want to take a step back here. Organizations that have a lot of data there's different ways you can begin. The more you know, the more options you have in that regard. The more history you have, you know, it's the Winston Churchill line. You want to, the further you look back into the past, the easier it is to look out into the future because there are certain fundamentals that don't change and there are certain fundamentals around which a lot of change takes place. So if I'm asking who do you want your customers to become? I'm going to be, I'm talking with somebody that they're really interested in this. I'm going to say, so who's the customer yet you, you love? Tell me why you love them. 
Do you make a lot of money from them? What's the nature? If you guys or people politically correct, were closer over the next three years, over the next two years, how would you want your interaction with them to change them? How do you want to transform them? How do you want to make them better? What do you want them to say about you? Not in terms of your product, about, about what they're capable of doing now that they weren't capable of doing then. Write that soliloquy out for me. Do that use case for me. Heck, do two or three use cases for me. I want you to begin in the specific and then abstract it to a segment. I want you to do that with your best. I want you to do that with your typical. Oh, let's have some fun. Let's look at your churn folks, the folks who've left. Why? How would you transform them? How would you have legitimately kept them on for another year before they left you in a way that doesn't compromise you at all? Let's steal, you know, the, the phrase which people seem to think comes from, from paper, you know, pushing the envelope is not from the paper industry. It's from airlines. It describes the trapezoid around which planes perform, you know, where they go into stalls, etc. Okay. You want to explore the envelope of who you want your customers to become. You want to rethink what segmentation means because traditionally segmentation is about a moment in time, this moment in time. I want you to think dynamically. What's the way you want that segment to evolve in 18 months? The real world example, and how do you learn from that? My favorite obvious example is Netflix. Netflix, never forget, Netflix didn't begin as a digital streaming company. It began mailing CDs. The original delivery system for Netflix was the good old U.S. Post. Exactly. It's hard to remember that. Or, depending on your dealings with it. Yeah. Uh, and if you or more realistically, the not so good old U.S. Postal Service. Okay. So th th there's a key point I want to make here, which is when they switched over, they, they, they were monitoring, they paid, you know, they were doing recommendations. They paid a lot of attention to how people actually behaved. What did they observe? They observed a certain segment of their users did what? They didn't watch for an hour a day or 90 minutes a day. They would binge watch for three or four hours. Mm -hmm. Binge watching. Talk about the dark side of the ask here. Oh, right, right. If we want to actually produce stuff as well as acquire stuff, how might binge watching behavior inform a series that we want to run? Because clearly we'd be morons if we didn't produce a series that didn't appeal to our binge watchers. Exactly. Exactly. So those questions and that order of operations of exploring the envelope, it, it seems like that's that is in itself such a huge piece for people to bite off. And, and I love what you said to, to write it out. Uh, you know, we're not talking about building a PowerPoint presentation. We're talking about really rich, deep thinking about that segment and understanding them and what you want them to, what you want them to look like in the future, not just this particular retroactive moment in time. And what particularly drives me crazy is the demographic slicing. Exactly. Uh, I, I would like to think that anyone who listens to the show is so far beyond demographic slicing. <laughs> it's all about behavior and attitude and, and aligning with that. What you know, they're, they're telling us all the time what they want and what they want from us. It's very difficult for businesses to listen. And what you've asked them to do is to listen. Well, the line that I like to use, the design heuristic I want to conclude with is is one that I've used successfully in my exec ed classes and with clients all over the world. You want to make your customers more valuable. And the design heuristic is making customers better makes better customers. If you only make your customers better and they don't become better customers, you're doing philanthropy. <laughs> if you're making customers, if you're making them better customers without making them better, you are a ruthless, predatory, exploitive capitalist. What you want to do is think in terms of a creative, virtuous cycle. How can we make customers better in ways that make them better customers? This 
is a question that the Googles, the LinkedIn's, the Facebook's, the Tencent's, the Alibaba's, the Netflix have a really good answer to. And I urge the people listening to this to really think in terms of facilitating and enabling that virtuous cycle. And the question that they want to launch that exploration is, who do we want our customers to become? And and if they do that, shouldn't they be making all of us better by minimizing the dark side of the ask? They should be making the world a better place, not to sound off. trite about it, but that's the alignment, right? That's all... I don't think it's trade-off at all. I'm a, I'm a Smithy in that regard. I, I, you know, the purpose of trade is to leave both people better off. But trade is in the moment. The purpose of investment is to leave both sides better off in the long term. So by definition, if you're focused on the long term, you better do a really good job of managing the downside risk. Perfect. Uh, there's so many rich things I love about our conversation, Michael. There, we've we've hit on so many fantastic topics along the way, um, from segmentation and innovation to equity and value, and of course the trade-off. So thank you so much for joining us today. I will be including links to uh, one of the HBR, actually the original article that I saw that connected me with you. <laughs> exactly the CLV one, and anything else you'd like us to link to. I want to thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it, as I'm sure you can tell. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.